Hello, friends. Welcome back to Bitcoin and Markets, the show that keeps you ahead of the curve in Bitcoin and related topics. Today, we're going to examine the Thucydides trap. This is the idea that a rising power versus a declining power and how that often leads to war. Uh, it was originally created to explain a coming conflict between the U.S. and China, and we'll see if it holds up to scrutiny <laughs> and if you should believe it at all, if it holds any weight. The Thucydides trap is applicable to Bitcoin in that it describes the geopolitical world that in which Bitcoin is entering in fantastic fashion this year. So if that sounds interesting, let's get into it. Some new intro music for you guys. Okay, uh, this podcast is 100% listener funded. Uh, we are on Patreon. And you can also become a member directly through the website at bitcoinandmarkets.com. With membership, you get access to our member newsletter that goes out at least weekly. Uh, and I can put out more content every once in a while uh, to members only. As well as on our Discord server, you can get access to the member-only room where I post like what I'm reading, what articles during that day or that week that I'm reading. So you can keep up on what I view as the latest news. So check out BitcoinandMarkets.com. Don't forget also check out FedWatch, Bitcoin and Macro. That's, so that's the subtitle, Bitcoin and Macro. That's my other podcast that I do with CK uh, and Bitcoin Magazine. And the last admin note here is I'm always trying to produce more content, so stay subscribed. I know I go through these periods where uh, a month or two I don't produce much, but I'm always, every week I do the free newsletter on Friday and the member newsletter, plus the Discord is every day we're active on there, so uh there is stuff going on. It's just I'm not releasing podcasts for this particular podcast. Plus, FedWatch comes out every week as well. So um, I will be putting out more and more content as much as I can on this particular feed. So stay, stay subscribed. Okay, let's get into this episode of the Thucydides Trap. Okay, so you can go to wikipedia and just look up thucydides he is uh from ancient greece roughly writing i believe around the year 400 bc about the peloponnesian war uh, his history of the peloponnesian war is seen as one of the greatest works of history uh, from ancient times especially so uh, it has been poured over for hundreds of years uh, ever since you know people started translating it translating it into the modern languages um the Thucydides trap is from this very specific article on the Financial Times, and I've archived it so you guys don't necessarily have to sign up for Financial Times to, to see this. Uh, but this came out in 2012, and it was written by Graham Allison. He is a professor at Harvard. Um, I think the other article I'm going to read here has his, you know, what his specialty is. He's something with history, I think. But, um, he talks about this Thucydides trap, um, and this is the first time that it's kind of been uh, voiced like this. It's an interesting article, and I'm just going to read a little bit from this article to understand what he's talking about with this Thucydides trap. So, the article is, Thucydides trap has been sprung in the Pacific. China and America are the Athens and Sparta of today, says Graham Allison. And this was from 2012. China's increasingly aggressive posture towards the South China Sea and the Seikaku Islands in the East China Sea are less important in itself 
than as a sign of things to come. For six decades after the Second World War, an American Pax Pacifica has provided the security and economic framework within which Asian countries have produced the most rapid economic growth in history. However, having emerged as a great power that will overtake the U.S. in the next decade to become the largest economy in the world, it is not surprising that China will demand revisions to the rules established by others. So that is the first paragraph, and within this paragraph he does acknowledge the Pax Pacifica, and I've talked about that a lot uh, in the past here on this show, is that the U.S. has basically subsidized the boom in globalization that first Japan and the other Asian tigers and then now China have benefited from, right? So this is, and that's the first time in world history that that area has been open to free trade like this. It's the first time in history that the entire globe has been patrolled by a benevolent, quote-unquote benevolent power that wants free trade. So um, that is a very, very rare time in history called the Pax Pacifica here by Graham Allison. Um, but then he says that the they will surpass the U.S. within the next decade. And remember, this was written in 2012, so that means that China will surpass the U.S. by next year. And now we, we hear other people coming out, oh, it's by 2025, or no, it's by 2028, and then they, oh, it's going to be sooner than expected, 2026. You know, like, they they constantly change this date. It's a moving target. And this is the exact same rhetoric that we heard with Japan back in the eight, late 80s and into the 90s, right as Japan was actually peaking and falling. And there's a lot of parallels between J the Japanese miracle of the 80s and the Chinese miracle of the teen years here, 2010 through 2020. So um, just to name a couple of those real quick is the amount of, what is it? I have this chart here. Let me pull this up. Okay, I have this. I have a chart that I will put in the show notes, and it's the non-financial corporate liabilities to GDP. Before I talk about this, one thing that's really hard with China is that the statistics, the government statistics, the economic statistics are very hard to understand. Their GDP is figured in a different way than the U.S. GDP. Um, for example, like uh, one of the kind of differences is people use gap accounting here and they don't necessarily use the same accounting standards in China. And so the GDP, when you hear a GDP number quoted for China, it is it's outside of the ballpark that we would consider if we were counting it inside the West. Right. So just be aware of that. But this this chart is non-financial corporate liabilities to GDP. And you see China is peaking um, or peaked right around 160% of this corporate liabilities to GDP. And Japan back in the early 90s, 92-ish, peaked at about 150%. So China is right in this ballpark of where Japan was peaking. That's one of the similarities. Um, we can look at a lot of different similarities, like the percentage of global GDP. Japan peaked out at about 18%, and I think China is right about 18% right now. And even though China is a much more populated country, it might get to 20% or something like that. But, you know, it's it's in the same um, ballpark as how Ch Japan peaked about that same level and will roll over because of the way it's financed, right? It's It's been financed off of debt, 
Anyway, those are just some of the similarities. Let's continue with Graham Allison and the Thucydides trap. The defining question about global order in the decades ahead will be, can China and the U.S. escape Thucydides' trap? The historian's metaphor reminds us of the dangers two parties face when a rising power rivals a ruling power, as Athens did in 5th century B.C., and Germany did at the end of the 19th century. Most such challenges have ended in war. Peaceful cases require huge adjustments in the attitudes and actions of governments and the societies of both countries involved. Classical Athens was the center of civilization. Philosophy, history, drama, architecture, democracy, all beyond anything previously imagined. This dramatic rise shocked Sparta, the established land power on the Peloponnese. Fear compelled its leaders to respond. Threat and counter-threat produced competition, then confrontation, and finally conflict. At the end of the Thirty Years' War, at the end of Thirty Years of War, both states had been destroyed. Thucydides wrote of these events, quote, It was the rise of Athens and the fear that this inspired in Sparta that made war inevitable, end quote. Note the two crucial variables, rise and fear. The rapid emergence of any new power disturbs the status quo. In the 21st century, as Harvard University's Commission on American National Interests has observed about China, quote, a diva of such proportions cannot enter the stage without effect, end quote. Never has a nation moved so far, so fast, up the international rankings on all dimensions of power. In a generation, a state whose gross domestic product was smaller than Spain's has become the second largest economy in the world. And I'll just break in here. Um, Japan might have been the same. So they say all dimensions of power, probably because of military. Japan was not a military power. Uh, and that is because the U.S., you know, <laughs> was had the umbrella over Japan for uh, the post-war period. And that is not to say that Japan wouldn't have been a military power as well. They most likely would have. They had been a rising military power long before World War II, long before World War I. They were fighting in Russia and stuff. So there is, most likely they would have been up there. But yeah, China, eh, interesting that they, they say that this nation moves so far so fast up the international rankings. But is that a good thing? They, he's saying it as if it's a good thing. Um, but I would think that that would lead you to believe it's unsustainable right? Nothing goes up in a straight line, as I always say about the charts. Okay, so um, where were we? If we were betting on the basis of history, the answer to the question about Thucydides' trap appears obvious. In 11 of 15 cases since 1500, where a rising power emerged to challenge a ruling power, war occurred. Think about Germany after unification, as it overtook Britain as Europe's largest economy. In 1914 and in 1939, its aggression and the UK's response produced world wars. Uncomfortable as China's rise for the US, there is nothing unnatural about an increasing powerful China demanding more say and greater sway in relations among nations. Americans, particularly those who lecture Chinese about being more like us, should reflect on our own history. As the U.S. emerged as the dominant power in the Western Hemisphere in about 
1890. How did it behave? Future President Theodore Roosevelt personified a nation supremely confident that the next 100 years would be an American century. In the years before the First World War, the U.S. liberated Cuba, threatened Britain and Germany with war to force them to accept U.S. positions on disputes in Venezuela and Canada, backed an insurrection that split Colombia to create a new state of Panama, which immediately gave the U.S. concessions to build the Panama Canal, and attempted to overthrow the government of Mexico, which was supported by the U.K. and financed by London bankers. In the half-century that followed, U.S. military forces intervened in our hemisphere on more than 30 separate occasions to settle economic and territorial disputes on terms favorable to Americans, or oust leaders we judged unacceptable. So, yes, but that's not a change. The U.S. isn't... Um, now, I'm not supporting any of these actions, okay? I'm just pointing out why this is wrong, because the U.S. is a direct lineage from the British Empire. We have cultural similarities. We have legal similarities. The economic power of the U.S. just took a while to build up, right? And it, it was built up not in 20 years like China's. <laughs> it was built up over 100 years or 150 years. So it's quite different um, if you think of it that way. And the U.S. is geopolitically much more powerful than China. Um, China has never been able to project power, ever, in in the long history. They'll, they'll claim this long thousand-year history, thousands and thousands of years, right? Unbroken history for 3,000 years or whatever they say about China. And in that time, they have never projected power. I think they ruled current-day Western China a few times in its history. If you go back through all of those thousands of years, it has almost never ruled over Western current day Western China. And they have never projected power. The only time there's been like huge flourishing in China, I would say, is the very rare periods where they were united. So this is in in this long history of China, this is a rare time that China is united. Um the other time would be when the Mongols came in, the Tang Dynasty, the Kublai Khan and stuff, um, they were united, part of the larger uh, Mongol Empire, and they were their economy flourished. Um, this was the time when paper money was introduced too, by the way. Uh, other than today, where they're unified by an outside power, right? Because the U.S. subsidizes global trade and exports of China, then they are... They have stayed united under this umbrella of outside influence. So it's interesting when you put it in, in context of history. So the U.S. you can't put in the context of history like that, right? The U.S. is, it, to put the U.S. in the context of thousands of years, you have to put it back to the British Empire, you know, back to the Magna Carta and other, other traditions long back in history uh, in Europe, not in the U.S., if you're talking about Thucydides trapping a rising power on the grand scheme of things, it should be the U.S. is the rising power here. Uh, I mean, the U.S. is the more democratic power, especially in this. I mean, of course, the democracy is very far from perfect, and I don't think there can be a perfect democracy. It's Democracy is a pretty crappy system. But if, if you think about Athens as the up-and-coming democracy, then you would have to say that's the U.S. is the up-and-coming democracy. 
versus China, which is the old school authoritarians. And that is the long history. That's Sparta. They were authoritarian, slave masters, basically. So, you know, this who who is playing which part here in the Thucydides trap? Obviously, he molds it to whatever he wants to, to say his narrative. So anyway, let's continue. To recognize powerful structural factors is not to argue that leaders are prisoners of the iron laws of history. It is rather to help us appreciate the magnitude of the challenge. If leaders in China and the U.S. perform no better than their predecessors in classical Greece or Europe at the beginning of the 20th century, historians of the 21st century will cite Thucydides in explaining the catastrophe that follows. The fact that war would be devastating for both nations is relevant but not decisive. Recall the First World War, in which all the combatants lost what they treasured most. In light of the risks of such an outcome, leaders in both China and the U.S. must begin talking to each other much more candidly about likely confrontations and flashpoints. Even more difficult and painful, both must begin making substantial adjustments to accommodate the irreducible requirements of the other. All right, that's it for that one. I, I think I said pretty much all I needed to say during that. Now, this next piece is from a website called SupChina.com. It's kind of a funny name, but this is a writer, uh, Arthur Waldron, and he published this in 2017 as a response to Graham Allison's book about the Thucydides trap. So he wrote that article in 2012. Then he came out with a book, I believe in 2017, might have been 2016, uh, called Destined for War, and it, it's about the Thucydides trap. And um, so Arthur Waldron and a bunch of other people at that time started writing critiques and uh, rebutting this idea of the Thucydides trap. So I'm just going to read through this. I don't know if I'll go through the whole thing, but we'll see how it goes. And I'll break in when I have commentary. All right title is There Is No Thucydides Trap. Arthur Waldron is a notable scholar of Chinese history and military affairs whose views are often out of sync with conventional wisdom. In this book review, he argues persuasively against the concept that has become a pillar of established thinking on China. Let's start by observing that perhaps the two greatest classicists of the last century, Professor Donald Kagan of Yale and the late Professor Ernst Badian of Harvard, long ago proved that no such thing exists as the Thucydides trap, certainly not in the actual Greek text of the great history of the Peloponnesian War, perhaps the greatest single work of history ever. Astonishingly, even the names of these two towering academic giants are absent from the text of this baffling academic Farargo. It was penned by Graham Allison, a Harvard professor, associated with the Kennedy School of Government, to whom questions along the lines of how did you write about the Iliad without mentioning Homer should be addressed. So what he's saying here is these the two greatest classical history people of the last century were not even mentioned in this book, Destined for War, not even mentioned in any of these arguments for the Thucydides trap. So it's very interesting. All right, sorry about that. Uh, let's continue. Allison's argument draws on one sentence of Thucydides' text, quote, What made war inevitable 
was the growth of Athenian power and the fear which this caused in Sparta. End quote. This lapsidary summing up of an entire argument is justly celebrated. It introduced to historiography the idea that wars may have deep causes, that resident powers are tragically fated to attack rising powers. It is brilliant and important, no question. But is it correct? Clearly not for the Peloponnesian War. Generations of scholars have chewed over Thucydides' text. Every battlefield has been measured. The quantity of academic literature on the topic is overwhelming, dating as far back as as 1629 when Thomas Hobbes produced the first English translation. In the present day, Kagan wrote four volumes in which he modestly but decisively overturned the idea of the Thucydides trap. Bodian did the same. The problem is that although Thucydides presents the war as started by the resident power Sparta out of fear of a rising Athens, he makes it clear first that Athens had an empire from which it wished to eliminate any Spartan threat by stirring up a war and teaching the hoplite Spartans that they could never win. The Spartans, Kagan tells us, wanted no war, preemptive or otherwise. Dwelling in the deep south, they lived a simple country life that agreed with them. They used iron bars for money and lived on bean soup when not practicing fighting their main activity. Athens' rival Corinth which also wanted a war for her own reasons, taunted the young Spartans into unwotent bellicosity, such that they would not even listen to their king, Archidamus, who spoke eloquently against war. Once started, the war was slow to catch fire. Archidamus urged the Athenians to make a small concession, withdraw the Mangarian decree, which embargoed a small, important state, and call it a day. But the Athenians rejected his entreaties. Then plague struck Athens, killing, amongst others, the leading citizen Pericles. Both Kagan and Batia note that the reason that the independent states of, the, of Hellas, including Athens and Sparta, had lived in peace became clear. Although their peoples were not acquainted, their leaders formed a web of friendship that managed things. The plague eliminated Pericles, the key man in this peacekeeping mechanism. Uncontrolled popular passions took over, and the war was revived, invigorated. It would end up destroying Athens, which had started it. Preemption would have been an incomprehensible concept to the Spartans, but, not, but war was not, and when the Athenians forced them into one, they ended up victors. The whole Thucydides trap, not clear who coined this false phrase, does not exist, even in its prime example, so now we can turn to the hash Professor Allison makes of the unfamiliar material he has chosen. Ignoring all this, Allison takes Thucydides literally. Wars sometimes begin when rising powers like Athens threaten established powers like Sparta. But do they really? The case is difficult to make. Japan was the rising power in 1904 when Russia was long established. Did Russia therefore seek to preempt Japan? No, the Japanese launched a surprise attack on Russia, scuttling the Tsar's fleet. In 1941, the Japanese were again the rising power. Did ever-vigilant America strike out to eliminate the Japanese threat? Wrong. Roosevelt considered it infamy when Japan surprised him by attacking Pearl Harbor at a time when the world was already in flames. 
switched to Europe in the late 1930s, Germany was obviously the rising menacing power. Did France, Russia, England, and the other threatened powers move against it? They could not even form an alliance. So the USSR eventually joined Hitler rather than fight him. Exceptions are there, and Allison makes a half-baked effort to find them. But these are not the mainstream. Is this some kind of immense academic lapse? No. What has really happened is that Allison has caught China fever. Not hard around Harvard, although knowing no Chinese language and little Chinese history. As a result, Allison seems to have been impressed above all by Chinese numbers, population, army size, growth rate, steel production, etc. So if that sentence from Thucydides is correct, then China is clearly a rising power that will want her place in the sun, which will lead, reluctantly to a collision between rising China, Athens, instigated by the presumably setting U.S., Sparta which will see military preemption as the only recourse to avert a loss of power and a Chinese-dominated world. To escape this trap, Allison demands that we must find a way to give China what she wants and forget the lessons of so many previous wars. Many of Allison's colleagues at Harvard also believe this to be true. The reality, however, is that Allison's recipe is actually a recipe for war. Appeasement of aggressors is far more dangerous than measured confrontation. Did China become more aggressive in the South China Sea in the 2000s because the Obama administration got tougher, or because it went AWOL on the issue? I'd say the latter is more likely. When it comes to China, we might want to be more mindful of the Chamberlain trap. After the peace-loving Prime Minister of England, one of the authors of the disastrous 1938 Munich Agreement, which sought to avoid war by concessions, which in fact taught Hitler that the British were easily fooled. This is the trap we are in urgent need of avoiding. As an intellectual exercise, let us try making the modest substitution in Allison's argument of Europe for China. Europe, excluding Russia and some other smaller countries, has a land area of 3.9 million square miles, which is to say larger than the U.S. at 3.79 million. The European Union GDP is roughly 20 trillion, while that of the United States perhaps 1 trillion less. Europe had 1.8 million forces in uniform in 2014, compared with 1 million for the United States today. Where am I going? If we add educational and technological levels as well as standards of living, one might be forgiven for thinking that by the numbers, Europe, not China, was the leading potential challenger to the United States. It may well be that the great, almost unspoken question of this century is the future of Europe. So far, however, Europe and America have not proven destined for war. Nor are America and China. As I see it, it's far more likely, but certainly not as sexy, to believe that there will be no destined war between China and the U.S., because the Chinese might actually have a clearer reading of history than the scholars at Harvard. Allison's book is chock-a-block with facts. And the impressive statistics of China's growth and military power that Allison cited are real. So are its advances in technology. Furthermore, since 1995, two years before Deng Xiaoping's death, Beijing 
simply used military force to seize a maritime formation called Mischief Reef from the Philippines, a clear reversal of Deng's policy of always maintaining good relationships with the United States. By 2012, China had occupied the Philippines' Scarborough Shoal as well, and continues to do so, while fortifying and creating islands in the South China Sea, where long runways were built for military aircraft, rockets deployed, submarines anchored, and in the East China Sea promulgating an air defense identification zone that just happened to include one Korean island China would like, and another group of such Japanese islands. In other words, Chinese policy seems to have changed, but how much, and more importantly, why? Since the attack on Scarborough Shoal, now six years ago, my opinion is that China expected to have occupied a lot more. Her slightly delusional view of her claims, first made explicit in ASEAN's winter meeting in 2010 in Hanoi, was that small countries would all bow respectfully to China's new preeminence. This has failed to occur. All of China's neighbors are now building up strong military capabilities. Japanese and South Korean nuclear weapons are even a possibility. Over-relying on their traditional concept of awesomeness, Wei, the Chinese expected a cakewalk. They have got instead an arms race with neighbors including Japan and other American allies, and India too. With so much firepower now in place, the danger of accident, pilot error, faulty command and control, etc. must be considered but I'd wager that the Chinese would smother an unintended conflict. They are, after all, not idiots. And I'll break in here real quick. I guess I can stop here with this article. Uh, it goes on another page or so, so I won't, I won't bore you guys with that. But I'll just add to this that my experience in the military is militarily, uh, this is what we got. So China is, yes, they have a larger quote-unquote larger navy, but it is all coastal-type vessels. There's very few that they would consider a blue-water navy, which is more than a 1,000 miles from your shore. So they, they don't have a huge arsenal that could go toe-to-toe with the United States. They could go into the Indian Ocean. You know, they're very reliant on Middle East oil. There's something like 50% of their energy needs are imported. So they need to have free trade. They need to have open sea lanes. If they don't, then they're they're wrecked. Um, they built their entire system off of this credit bubble. And I wouldn't want to be a export-led nation in a time where we're having deglobalization, right? <laughs> deglobalization for an exporter is suicide. Um, so... That, that's kind of what I see. Also, the Indian military is very capable. The U.S. Air Force has uh, exercises with the Indian military, I think, yearly. If It might be every two or three years. But there's a big exercise with them. And even back when I was in the military, so this is 10 years ago, the Indians would win a lot of these. And it, it was not even, I would say, but it was like they were extremely capable. They were an extremely capable uh, Air Force, extremely capable military, and they're building up their Navy now. So anything on the Indian side of the Himalayas is game over for China. They're not going to win it. 
Same with Japan. I mean, Japan has the Navy dominance, the Navy history. There's no way that China is going to dominate Japan on the open oceans. So just their local neighborhood. I mean, and Japan has been beefing up their Navy as the U.S. has been stepping back. So there's no way that militarily China is going to be able to exert power. The only thing they'll be able to do is maybe get to Taiwan and Taiwan will be their key to getting to the broader Pacific because of that first island chain. And so then they might be able to exert some force that way. But really, even then, they have to have a blue water navy, which isn't built overnight. Even with Chinese, even with the, the Chinese infrastructure that they have today, it would take them 50 years to be in the same league as the United States Navy. And what is the United States Navy going to be doing during that time? Well, they're probably, they just signed a contract for like 250 more ships. And these are cutting edge stealth ships, right? They're not like the, the type of ships you see for the Coast Guard or whatever. They're like extremely hardcore, top of the line technology, these American ships. So even as China's trying to catch up, the U.S. is just going to pull further and further ahead. So. I don't see them being a military threat at all. It's not going to happen. And then in that situation, all the U.S. has to do is say, we're not enforcing this anymore. Yeah, it's funny because from 2003, uh, one of the big statistics they'll cite is from the time that the CCP joined the WTO, they grew from 3% of GDP to 17% of GDP. And they're saying, oh, look at this is just the Chinese models taking over the world. Well, uh, no, it's because the U.S. has subsidized free trade. The U.S. has kept the trade peaceful. And I'm not, uh, I mean, I'm an anarchist. I don't want the United States government out there necessarily patrolling the seas and being the world policeman. But since the U.S. has been the world policeman, that is the world that exporters thrive in. And that's pretty much what has happened. What else do I have on my notes here? Yeah, so I'm a big, I'm a huge supporter of free trade, and I wish we had free trade. But I'm, I'm a realist in that, you know, I'm also a prepper, somewhat. I've been a bigger prepper in my past than I am today. Just last year, last January, when I saw this virus coming, I was a huge prepper, but, um, uh, I'm, I'm a prepper. And I think that you, you see these things that are dangerous and you know that <laughs> securing trade is very, very expensive, very expensive. And it's just not possible once you get to a certain, uh, level. Like, so for instance, the Chinese are in this, what we call the middle income trap. They're too wealthy to be low labor cost. You can go to Vietnam, you can go to Indonesia, you can get much cheaper labor, like by three times cheaper. But they're not wealthy enough to be consumers, to be a consumer-driven economy. Their skills are not high enough. So um, they're caught in this uh, middle income gap. And right at, the, right at the time that the U.S. is leaving, you know, to help them to get over this gap. So yeah, it's expensive to subsidize free trade. Piracy is a thing. International relations are a thing. And there's going to be lots of these, lots of this 
tightrope walking that the Chinese have to do. And when the Chinese crack down on, on the Hong Kong people, and then they want to maybe take over Taiwan and crack down on the Taiwanese, you know, are the Filipinos going to want to do business? Are the Vietnamese going to want to do business? Probably not. Probably not. Especially when China is continually encroaching on their islands, encroaching on their space, and they have a capable military. And they have a capable alliance amongst them. And they have India and Japan. I mean, I just don't see a world where China exerts power. It never has in its history. So this is why uh, geography and demographics are so important. Um, There is one thing that could be really good for China, and that would be to continue to be the center of Bitcoin mining. And they seem to be pissing that down their leg as well. That is it for this one, guys. Thank you for joining me. My name is Ansel Lindner. This is Bitcoin and Markets. This is a listener-funded podcast. To find out more, go to bitcoinandmarkets.com. That is where you'll also find the show notes for this episode. And while you're there, subscribe to the free weekly newsletter. Uh, That is the best free weekly newsletter in Bitcoin called the Fundamentals Report. And check out the Discord. We're building a nice community over there with lots of simultaneous topics and rooms going at the same time. So BitcoinandMarkets.com and you'll find all of that information. Thanks for listening. See you next time.